0: Well, hello everybody, and thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Bible Breakdown. Looking forward to getting to move forward in our material with gospel project this week. So we've been in Acts for the last couple of weeks and kind of been following Acts for last several weeks and then we've been taking some breaks with some of Paul's letters, James as well. Peter, so we're hitting all the major epistles. We are back in one of the epistles, one of the letters, this week, and this one is from Paul. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians, so it's another one of those situations where we're going to be covering six chapters, so we're not going to do just a ton, a ton of reading, but luckily these chapters are, are fairly focused, and even when reading over the material from the Gospel Project, there's a certain theme they are aiming at talking about, so I think that will be doable for us to do without having to read six chapters. So that's what we're going to go for. But we are going to be in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're going to primarily look in chapter 1 and chapter 3 for a couple of the things that Paul's talking about. Just to remind you where we just talked about, we just went over Paul's first missionary journey. He went with Barnabas, and he went to several cities. And just a couple of the things that we took out of that was, A, just how God delivered he and Barnabas from several difficult situations, how God worked powerfully through them, how he rescued them in many cases. And then we also got to see just an example of what Paul's discipleship for the churches that he shared the gospel at was. He went through and he shared the gospel kind of on his way. And then on his way back, he hit them all again. He set up elders. He set up just ways for the churches to continue after he was gone without his teaching people that could be entrusted with the gospel to keep those churches thriving. So that's kind of what we talked about last week and then this week um, we're reading a letter that paul has written to a church that he plants now it was not one of the churches we read about last week we're going to see the planting of the church in corinth in chapter 18 we're actually going to look at that in a few weeks from acts 18 uh, through the gospel project but as for now you'll just have to take my word for it that in acts 18 paul is going to visit corinth so that is where He's writing to, and really the theme we're going to talk about today is Paul is writing to the Corinthians about several issues, but in this section, one of the biggest ones is disunity or division in the church. So I think just an incredibly pertinent topic for us in this day and age. And we know that Paul wrote two letters to the church in Corinth, and they're both really long. The church in Corinth had a lot of issues. Disunity was merely one of them. But one of the big ones and you'll see in some of Paul's letters when he writes to the Ephesians or the Philippians it's a lot it's real flowery he's like I miss you y'all are awesome with the Corinthians he doesn't really get that far into the letter before he's got a gripe with them we're gonna talk about what he's griping about and to be fair it sounds like he's got a point so the first passage that we're gonna read out of this section is gonna be in chapter 1 I'm gonna start in verse 10 Paul says I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So that's uh, verse 13 is one of Paul's favorite rhetorical devices of the rhetorical question where he's assuming the answer is no. So he says Christ divided. He's kind of, of course not. Was Paul crucified for you? Of course not. He's writing a letter. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? He's saying you better not have been. But what he's saying here is that apparently different people at Corinth were starting to identify primarily with the teachers and church leaders rather than the gospel message they all Shared in common. Now, I hesitate to say rather than in Christ, because you see here in verse 12, he's going to have this group of people that say, I follow Christ. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But really, what he's saying is they're missing the point. They're missing the point that all of these teachers, the ones he names here are Paul, Apollos, and okay, we have to talk about this. So when I read this in English, I see it C E P H A S. And typically you're going to hear people say Cephas. That's Peter. So that refers to Peter, the Apostle Peter. But it's from the Aramaic of, and it's like a Greek version of the Aramaic name, which is Kephas. So I don't know. Again, we talked about it a little bit last week with one of the names with uh, Derby. I really don't know how we decide how we transliterate names from aramaic into english because if you look at it in the aramaic it should be kphos it shouldn't be cephas but that's how we always say it so i'm gonna keep saying cephas though that's really probably not the right way to say it anyways quiet blake quiet now anyways those are the three people that are apparently getting a and kind of an individual let's call it an individual following maybe a, a faction so these three and then you've got the people who say i follow christ So Paul is really concerned that they are missing the point that it's not about the teacher. It's about the message and the message between all of these folks is the same. So let's talk about kind of what these divisions might have represented. It's, it's very difficult to say exactly what was going on. We really are mostly working off of what we know about these guys, rather than something that Paul's going to say explicitly about what the different factions, if you will, were focused around. So with Paul, so some things we know about Paul in, related, in relation to the Corinthian church is he was the first one to bring the gospel to them. Um, he preached in a way that was very humble. He's going to talk about that later. He, he talks about how he didn't want to preach with eloquent language. He wanted to preach nothing but Christ crucified. So there could have been people that really identified with that. Also, Paul, we know a big part of his ministry is to the Gentiles. That's primarily where the Lord's called him. And he's going to talk a lot about freedom from the law. So it could even be that people are really interested in how he preaches about freedom from the law. Again, we're, we're kind of assigning some explanation just based on what we know about Paul. This is not none of this is um, set in stone, just kind of giving some ideas about what maybe these groups were interested in. So the second one is Apollos. Apollos is um, he's mentioned in a few different places in the New Testament. He's obviously not as well known as Apollo Paul or Peter. But uh, what we do know about Apollos is that he did go to Corinth and he did continue to build on the work that Paul had started there. And one thing we know about Apollos uh, is that he was a very eloquent speaker, that he was well skilled in rhetoric. He was very persuasive. Think about whatever speaker you've ever heard that just kept your attention. You were absolutely locked in. That was Apollos. And he was he actually had a little trouble getting started in his ministry because a lot of what he knew, and we see this in, uh, in acts, I believe it's also chapter 18. He knew about John's baptism, which was kind of this baptism when John was baptizing people before Jesus shows up. It's kind of like this baptism of repentance or, or turning back to the Lord, turning back to, to the law, even to an extent. And so he knew about John's baptism of repentance, but we find out that he actually was not really, Aware of what the baptism of Christ was to be baptized in the name of Jesus into the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So these people, Priscilla and Aquila, are going to actually kind of take him aside and be like, "Hey, you're actually missing some info here." So Apollos, it seems, was really skilled at talking with people of the Jewish faith because that seemed to be his expertise, and he was very persuasive. He needed a little bit of, of fine tuning on his message, but. For all intents and purposes, it seems that the Lord used him mightily in the early churches. But that was kind of the thing with Apollos. People may have been drawn to him because of how effective a speaker he was. Now, when we talk about good old Cephas, Cephas, Peter here, I'm just going to probably say Peter the rest of the time. Peter, we know, was the leader of the ministry primarily to the Jews. So there may have been a certain following of Peter because they felt like he represented them. He represented their interests. They know also that Peter was a disciple of Jesus, so there may have been a certain gravitas that afforded him. From what we know from Scripture, we don't see a place where Peter actually visits Corinth, so we don't. We're not for certain if he actually ever visited or if it was more of a reputation sort of thing. But we do know here from what Paul's saying is that people seem to be drawn to this camp for one reason or another, the, the camp of Peter, so to speak. And again, this is not to an indictment on the leaders as much as the people who are following up. Paulus is not trying to gather his own people and Peter's not trying to gather his own people. Paul isn't trying to gather his own people. That's not really what Paul's getting at. He's He feels like these factions are being made within the church, uh, kind of apart from these leaders. And then you've got this final group, uh, says the people say, I follow Christ. These might be the the spiritualizers, the Jesus jukers, if you've ever heard that term, like, oh, you follow a human? Well, I follow Christ. I follow him directly. So that makes me better. You, This may be people that saw themselves as more spiritual and maybe thought they were better um, because maybe they just totally disregarded the idea that there was human agency in the message they knew. And they just said, well, I follow Christ. And that was kind of their way of uh, being holier than thou and other Probably an older, more recognizable term than Jesus juker. Maybe they were a little bit overly spiritual of thought. They were a little better than they were. That's a tough one. It's tough to have really indict somebody who says, I follow Christ. But it seems from the way Paul's talking about it, that it was being used not in sincerity, but in some sort of divisive way. So that's kind of the reason that we see that. But that's, the divisions that Paul has laid out for us and Paul is not happy about it. And we'll talk a little bit. He'll talk a little bit more about it. So the next sections, Paul's also going to just jump into and I'll just kind of go over this briefly briefly as we look from one eighteen through chapter two, a lot of what Paul is going to talk about is that, and it, I don't think this is meant to be slandered at Apollos, but it kind of comes across that way just from what we know about him. It's not through like human wisdom that we were saved, but that it's rather through what man would see as foolishness, which is that God would come and God would die on our behalf to, to man that may seem foolish. Like why would God come and die? But it's through that foolish, what man would see as foolish was actually the wisdom of God. And that's ultimately where the message of Christ is rooted. It's not rooted in any one person. That's really the point he's trying to make is that if it was based on human wisdom or human giftedness, the message of Christ would probably not be the message that any man would have chosen, but rather it's this wisdom from God that surpasses any wisdom of man. And that that's been revealed through Christ. So that's kind of what that middle section is. And that's one way he's trying to counter this idea that they should have any sort of division based on a church leader. So that's kind of where he's going with that. And so as we move into chapter three, he's going to talk a little bit more about these divisions. And so starting in verse five, he says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So what Paul is explaining here is his relationship with Apollos is that they are fellow workers. And we know, again, that Apollos did visit search in Corinth. The fact that Peter's not mentioned here may be, further indication that maybe Peter never actually visited the church of Corinth, but rather that he, this faction based on Peter was um, rooted in something else. But he's trying to make the point that he and Apollos had different roles in their spiritual development, but that that's not what it's about. It's not about which part they played. He says, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but it's only God who gives the growth, recognizing that they are working toward the same mission and they are serving the God who actually has brought them growth in their church. So he's trying to tell them it's, it's foolishness to try to separate yourself into factions based on people, because the people are just servants of the God who's actually causing the growth. And that, the way that you can know that God is through this message, which seems like foolishness to those who are perishing, but is the wisdom of God, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, We shouldn't be too surprised that this is something that's coming up in Paul's ministry. We have been talking a lot. Anytime you're going through Acts, you're going through the epistles, you cannot help but see that unity is a major theme of the New Testament. Unity is a huge portion of the New Testament, especially as it relates to those who are in Christ. And we see a lot of it delineated even between uh, racial and ethnic boundaries between Jews and Gentiles. And this, it seems to be more almost like theological differences, you might say, um, though there may be an element of racial or ethnic division as well. But just to go over a couple different places where unity is a major theme. And again, it's it's a large theme throughout the New Testament. So these are just a couple of examples. One is Ephesians 2. And in that Paul is going to be writing to the church in Ephesus and he's going to be talking about this unity that exists between those who were far away, which is the Gentiles and those who were near, which is the Jews. He's going to talk about how through Christ, the things that divided them, which again, would have been cultural, but also in some ways religious as well, because the Jews had this certain view of Gentiles based on the man-made laws they had, Um, The Gentiles had a certain view of the Jews based on those laws as well, as well as just the differences in how they worshiped. And so he's going to talk about how when Christ came, when Christ died and when they were brought this gospel message that the things that divided them were gone. There was no reason for them to be divided any longer because there's unity in Christ. So that's a a major topic there in this latter half of chapter two of Ephesians. Another one is we're actually going to, at some point in First Corinthians, Paul is actually going to talk about this in chapter 12. So he's writing in the same letter, same church. He's going to make this analogy, which you may know of, is the church as a body. So he refers to the church as a body with different parts. And, uh, and I can't say to a hand, I don't want to be an eye. Hand can't say to a foot, I don't want to be hand. Basically making the point, if your human body, if some of your parts were to rebel based on what role they have, then your body would not work as intended. And he refers and he is comparing that to the church and saying that we don't all have the same role. We don't all have the same gifts, but we all work together and we act in this unified whole and we're greater than the sum of our parts. That's kind of the point he makes there, knowing that, you know, in some cases there are positions or roles in the church that people may see as less glamorous and they maybe want something more glamorous but what paul's saying is it can't operate if everybody wants to be the quote-unquote glamorous position not everybody can be the teaching pastor every sunday nobody'd hear anything nothing would get done other than things on the stage there's other things going on in the church body and so he's going to encourage unity in that diversity knowing that we all have different gifts And then even in the Gospels, we see Jesus talk about this quite a bit, especially referring to his church. So John 14 through 17 chapters, John 14, chapter 14 through chapter 17, just a really great section of Scripture. Very encouraging. Just that it's just a sweet time with Jesus, with the disciples as he talks to them. And then here in we're going to look in. Chapter 17, this is part of what we call the high priestly prayer. So Jesus is our high priest and him praying on behalf of all who will believe in him. So it's just I think it's an especially just sweet gift from the Lord to see in Scripture a specific place where Jesus prays for his church, for those who will believe in him. And it starts in verse 20 of chapter 17. Jesus praying to the Father says, I do not ask for these only, referring to the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So there's a lot of little clauses in there that can make it difficult to, uh, to read, but just the beauty in that, that he's praying to the Father, thank you that we are one, make our church one as well. Give them the unity that we have. And not only that, give them not just unity with one another, but a unity that exists with us. So Jesus is praying, asking the Father on our behalf that we be unified together as one in one body with the Trinity. And just what a beautiful prayer that is that Jesus offers on our behalf. And it says so much to what Jesus' hope is for those who will come to know him through the word of the disciples, that the world would see how unified we are and that that would be a reason that they would believe who Jesus is which when I hear that, that's, a, that's very convicting. And I think about just the divisions that I've even participated in, um, even if it's not on some scale like we see in first Corinthians, that anything that I've done to create disunity is ultimately a reflection on Jesus and could be something that turns others away from, belief in Jesus that's it's sobering and it's uh, challenging it's serious convicting um, to think about so Paul is writing to the Corinthians about this division and about desiring unity Jesus wants unity he Paul writes to other churches and other situations about unity unity is just a huge portion of what it means to be a follower of Christ so I think as we read this and we read what the Corinthians were going through it begs the question for us, what causes disunity for us today? What are our threats to unity? I don't know that uh, Paulos has got much of a following in churches in Texas, but we've got other issues. So that's probably just good that we don't have one more. Um, But I've kind of got three different things that I kind of thought up that cause disunity for us today. So there's division based on preference, division based on disagreement, and there's division through gossip, course three, that came up. So as far as division based on preference, I think we've all kind of heard, you know, jokes about like, oh, yeah, church splits over the color of the carpet. It would be funny if it weren't true. It would be funny if that was so ridiculous that it never happened. But the reality is that things like that do divide individual church bodies. Um, other, other little things like that, contemporary or traditional music. These preference: do I prefer a more contemporary style or more traditional? Do I want people to wear robes in the choir or not wear robes in the choir? Do I want to have a choir or not have a choir? Which version of the Bible do I want my church to read? These all seem very like, and to you, they, some of them may strike something that you've experienced yourself. Some of them, you may think all of these sound really trivial, but the reality is that churches have split over all of these things. This is a reality that has happened in churches that church bodies split over these questions. Maybe one that hits a little closer to home sometimes for us, because we, I think, do have strong preferences on this, is do I prefer this preacher or that preacher? So Solid Rock, um, Jason is our lead pastor. He does the bulk of the preaching, and I, I think he does so, rightfully so. That's his gifting. That's his calling. He's very skilled at it. He does a great job but is it, does it come to a point where if somebody else is preaching that it's like, Oh, I don't know if I want to gather in worship this week. And one thing I think that we do intentionally at the church is that it's not, that's not a highlight of like, Hey, everybody come see this person preach. Ultimately it's the word of God that stands supreme. And that the person preaching it again, is just like a Paul or Apollos, neither he plants or waters, anything God gives the growth. It's only through the working of God that a, a message a person preaching can have any effect but do we allow ourselves to forsake gathering together if we were to know that oh the preacher i like the best isn't going to be there or i'd i'd go to my church but i just really prefer podcasting this other person there can be division that can be caused based on those preferences things like that the second division that's based on disagreement can you think of a time when people disagreed more and more forcefully than the last year and a half I'm not that old, but I can't think of a time where people disagreed more strongly, disagreed more often than over this last year and a half. Um, Let's see a couple examples. What should we do about COVID? How should we respond to COVID? How should we respond to uh, racism and police relations? Um, How should we align ourselves with a political party? These things have been just right in everybody's face the whole time, and The reality is there's disagreement on those things. But I think the bigger question we have to ask is not really do we agree, but the questions are how do we speak to each other and how do we listen to each other when we disagree? How do we use platforms of communication like social media or uh, texting, phone calls, um, whatever it may be? How do we respond to that? How do we use our platforms in the midst of disagreement, do we use them to further our agenda or do we use them to speak life and to speak hope? And I think a lot of times we're we're having more trouble reconciling and having unity with people who disagree with us than ever. Um, and I, I've seen that a lot in personal relationships and everything. Just the the disagreements can really have been really harming relationships, I think, especially... Over the last year and a half, there's just a lot of polarization. There's a lot of disagreement and there's a lot of drawing lines in the sand. But really, we have to think about how do we speak to each other and how do we listen to each other? How do I interact with somebody who is my brother or sister in Christ, even in the midst of disagreement? And so last, I think uh, one of the things I've listed, things that can cause disunity for us today. Another big one, I think, is gossip. Um, gossip has a way of pervading the church. Gossip is uh, incredibly harmful to unity. Gossip is in har- incredibly harmful to individuals. Um, a sp- story I'll tell you about myself with this is um, at the first church I worked with after I graduated from college, I there was a pastor that worked there that um, I just had some difficult interactions with. And instead of taking the direct route and seeking reconciliation with him, I I worked to try to get people to be on my side. I'd say, Hey, yeah, this happened. And don't you think that was wrong? And yeah, he just really has a, a problem with me. Do you think that's fair? Do you think he should have a problem with me? And you know, it's more for me telling these things. So I could almost just puff myself up and make myself feel better about what had happened by trying to get people to say, Oh yeah, you're in the right and he was in the wrong. When really that's irrelevant because what it does is sow seeds of disunity. And in my time there, I never made the effort to go and directly talk to him about the difficulties that we'd had. I'd tried some indirect methods that, that failed. Obviously, as I just confessed, I uh, used the gossip method. Obviously that was not effective. Um, But yeah, to this day, I don't feel settled in that relationship. And it was because I chose gossip, which led to disunity and drove us farther apart. And so I recognize that and, confess that I was wrong in that, even if, you know, and these things are always any relationship we have is a two way street, but at the same time, got to take time to own what's in our own heart. I've got to own what's in my own, in my own heart. In these situations, gossip can really tear people apart and it's so subversive. And it's so quiet. It's like a, a weed that grows um, out of sight until by the time it gets to the point where you can see it, it's already done so much damage. And division comes through gossip. And I have been really grateful for my time at Solid Rock to see just what an emphasis that the church places on unity and that in any sort of issue that could be divisive, that unity is really been a a theme that I've come across a lot and that's been preached and I think has been practiced to a a good degree. And so I'm, I'm grateful to the Lord for that. And really as we seek to combat division there's, there's several things we can do. I've, I've got three of those two, three is just a good number when you're talking about something, you know, three seems palatable. So one is a recognition of God's call. The issue that the Corinthian church was having was that they didn't recognize that God had a different call for all of these church leaders. And so instead they chose preference and they chose division based on that. If we can recognize that God's calling us to different things and that in some things, even when we disagree, people can disagree and, it still be them still be in relationship with God. And I think sometimes we can struggle with that, but we need to recognize God's call and what God says is important, what God has clearly laid out for us in scripture and what maybe he hasn't as clearly laid out. And that there's grace in between that. Uh, another way we combat division is having the right time and place when there are issues. There's, there's legitimate issues that exist. There's, there's no getting around that, but it's that, When's the right time to talk about this? Where's the right place? What's the right context? Who's the right person to talk about this issue with? We can combat division by having wisdom in how we talk to one another, when we talk to one another, where we talk to one another. And that can create unity and combat division. And then finally, and I mentioned it already, but listening to to and bearing with one another, choosing unity over choosing who is right. There's a time where there may be a, a need to separate based on something that is a gospel issue that is a foundational scriptural gospel issue but a lot of the issues we have are there's there's freedom in that there's tension in that but at the same time being right is less important than being unified i think we have to be able to identify those issues well and to know when's what's right to plant our flag on and what honestly we can leave up to the Lord and we can choose unity. But that's all for today. I hope that this was helpful and I hope that just as it has for me, as I've gone through this, that you can see instances in your life where unity may be a at threat and that you can be an agent of unity wherever you are.